Airlines Confidential with Ben Valdanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. SeaburySecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Attention aviation lovers, I'm Ben Baldanza and you've come to the right place. Time for another edition of your favorite podcast, Airlines Confidential. And I'm Chris Chimes. Thanks for joining us. Ben, I heard a new term this week and I hope they're not talking about us. Morally dubious podcasters, as characterized in the Hulu series Only Murders in the Building, but apparently that's a thing, and people are pointing to others beyond the Tina Fey character on the show and real podcasters who are, quote, morally dubious. Now, I've been called dubious multiple times. Do you consider yourself morally dubious? <laughs> I've probably been called that at times, but I don't think of myself as morally dubious. But I laughed when I saw that because I'm a big fan of that series. And the Tina Fey character is one of the great ones in it, I think. Well, we'll just have to stay moral and trustworthy and stay on the straight and narrow uh, as we proceed. Starting with some news and then an interesting and provocative conversation of sorts with Scott Litzicum from the Cato Institute. First up, I feel like the U.S. regional airline industry is turning into a mashup of Game of Thrones and Moneyball. Air Wisconsin, which has had more lives than Garfield, Felix, and Hello Kitty combined, has been snatched away from United by American Airlines. This is, of course, after we've been seeing the death knell for the 50-seat RJs like the CRJ 200s that Airways flies, but it somewhat looks like a power play for pilots. Meanwhile, Mesa Airlines broke through the tape and set a new standard for pilot pay, announcing a deal that will make their Embraer 175 captains and co-pilots the highest paid in the industry for now. Then, as ExpressJet shut down last week, Piedmont Airlines has offered their pilots conditional job offers without so much as an interview. Where's all this going, Ben? You know, it shows the chaos in the regional airline business, and it shows just how difficult it's been for regionals to keep pilots. The switch from United to American for Airways is a little surprising to me. It's not without precedent. That's happened before in the industry where a carrier flew for one airline, switched and started flying for another. But those things things were, have been pretty well settled for a number of years. So that one surprised me. On the pay issue, I don't know what else the regional carriers can do other than increase pay to help keep the pilots they have from jumping ship to bigger airlines. We've talked about that issue a lot on the show, Chris. I like the one idea that one of our questioners had about the idea of giving regional carriers a 
seniority number at a big carrier so they could stay at the regional carrier a little longer but not sacrifice their their seniority at the big airline. But that's not a done deal anywhere and has other issues with it. I think that paying pilots at regionals like they're paid at larger commercial airlines with bigger pay is a short-term fix, but I think it's ultimately going to cause problems for the regionals because they essentially pass through their costs to the larger airline. And the larger airline, the American United or Delta, pays those airlines on a cost-plus basis. So if they're having to essentially pay more for the feed. What they're going to find is some of the marginal flying isn't going to work anymore. And maybe it worked at one level of cost to fly some flights, but it doesn't. So the total amount of flying available for the regionals is at risk of shrinking if they let their total cost get too high, which could happen if they end up paying their crews the same as those that fly much bigger airplanes. And it's not suggesting that they aren't as important to the airline or don't do his professional job. It's just a matter of math. If you have to divide the cost of the flight by 70 seats, Everybody has to pay more than when you're divided by 150 seats or 180 seats. So pilots getting paid more to fly bigger airplanes isn't just because of more experience or the fact they're carrying more people. It's the fact that all those seats and all the revenue from those seats can cover a higher cost base. That's one of the real challenges the regional is going to have with paying the crews as much as, say, a Spirit pays or a Frontier pays. Well, like you said, Ben, it's a short-term solution in that specific case. I guess I'm struggling with what's the end game. I mean, I guess the end game is to make sure regional jets are staffed by pilots, but there just seems to be kind of a, the way I ice skate, I never get out in the middle of the rink and skate around. I just kind of go from wall to wall. And I just feel like that's how these problems are being solved in kind of an immediate, we've solved it for today and we'll live to fight another day kind of approach. But, you know, the express jet closed down, maybe that makes the situation better by making more pilot candidates available, but then do they just, get snatched up at the main lines or whatever that might be. So, you know, like I said, what's the end game? Now, since you use the word chaos, we're going to talk about another chaotic situation. And this kind of goes in the category of, are you effing kidding me? Amsterdam Schiphol Airport, the site of some of the worst airport chaos since the spring, has reported a profit for the first six months of the year. What's your reaction to all this? My reaction is they must make boatloads of money when things are working really <laughs> well, right? The fact that they could make a profit after all the challenges, after limiting flights, after telling customers not to check bags. There's a couple of things here. Maybe just a lot of their costs are are fully depreciated, so any revenue they get, a high amount of that goes to the bottom line. It could be that even without as many flights, their 
they have contracts where airlines have still had to pay a lot of real estate costs, essentially gate fees and ticket counter fees and things, even though they weren't using all of those. It's possible that the airlines that fly into Skipball essentially didn't save money when they didn't fly in terms of their airport fees. I hope they didn't have to pay landing fees on flights that never landed. But it was really surprising. Airports make money in all kinds of ways, but most of those ways are tied to people actually being in the airport. Airplanes landing with people, people parking, people spending money to get coffee and food and all kinds of things. So the fact that they could make money in the first six months when they didn't have as many people suggests they got an interesting thing going on over there and we'll have to see what they report once things are back to normal if they ever get there chris well of course european airports and airports around the world operate off a different model than they do here in the u.s and that they're often privatized and corporate entities but Still, if I was an airline who had incurred tens of millions of dollars of extra costs, i.e. KLM, uh, with the chaos at that airport and then saw that my landlord was making money through all this, I would be a little unhappy. So if you're in the air transport business, you need to know the name Aerodata. For three decades, Aerodata has helped airlines get more from their operations with its aircraft performance, weight and balance, and load planning tools and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and see how the Aerodata team can make a difference for you and your air carrier operations. And Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company, is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburysecurities.com. Finally, on the news front, Ben, Delta had previously announced plans to retire by 2025 their aging fleet of Boeing 717s, although I always think of them as MD-95s. So as the date gets closer, they're taking out their checkbook again to firm up some more aircraft orders, 12 more Airbus 220s. Delta will be the largest operator of those aircraft in the U.S., this is in addition to the 130-737 MAX jets announced at Farnborough this summer. As popular as the Airbus 220 is, Ben, I know JetBlue is happy with the aircraft as well. Did you think we'd be hearing more buzz about these planes by now? I think they've got 500 or so on the order books to deliver, but there is a bit of a backlog. I expect, Chris, that this plane is going to continue to sell very well. It fits a really good position among narrow-body airplanes. It's bigger than regional jets, but maybe not quite as big as the bigger A320s and 737 models. But most importantly, it's 30 or more years newer in the design of the plane. The A320 and 737s are essentially older designs that have been updated regularly, and I'm not suggesting that one delivered today is the same that was delivered in 1980, but 
the design of the planes essentially is older. And this plane is really the first narrow body that was designed from scratch that's now widely available, or the most recent, I mean, that was designed from scratch, that's widely available. It was a great plane when designed and sold by Bombardier, but Bombardier couldn't sell it that well, mostly because lessors and airlines weren't comfortable that Bombardier could support it. You know, you can land a 737 or an A320 at almost any airport in the world and find a mechanic who knows the plane and get parts there quickly and things. Um, the 220, which was called the C-Series then, airlines and lessors saw a risk that there wouldn't be someone to release the plane to when their first lease ended, or airlines were thinking I might have it stuck in a station for a week while I'm trying to get people there who are competent to fix it and such. When the plane line was bought by Airbus and rebranded as the 220, People know that Airbus can support a fleet worldwide and has been doing it for many years. So at that point, that's when the plane really started selling well. And I expect actually that this sort of announcement of 500 planes on the order books, we're going to see more than double of that in the next few years. That's my guess. Well, let's hope so. We'll watch that space. We'll be right back with our conversation with Scott Lidsicum from the Cato Institute. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. We're very excited to have with us today Scott Lincecombe, who's the Director of General Economics and Trade at the Cato Institute. Scott, why don't you tell our listeners about your background? So I've, uh, I've been with Cato uh, full-time for uh, the last two years. Prior to that, I was an adjunct scholar, uh, primarily writing on U.S. trade policy. And in my full-time gig back then, I was a, uh, a practicing trade lawyer for a, a large private firm here in the United States. And, and on the side, I teach uh, at Duke Law School and prior to that, Duke University undergrad on uh, trade law and policy, uh, and also write today a newsletter on U.S. economic policy called Capitalism with an O at The Dispatch. So, Scott, you've got a growing library of analysis and commentary about you know, broad economic issues with some specific things about the airline industry, which is our interest and I know our, our listeners as well. Can you kind of describe, you know, as we crawl out of this pandemic, what have been the issues on a macroeconomic level or micro that have impacted the airline business and what are the current problems you're seeing still existing in the U.S.? So, um, you know, in a lot of ways, what's going on in the airline industry is similar to what is going on in a lot of different industries in the United States and around the world. Um, you know, the way I describe it is it's just the good old pandemic doing its thing. Um, you know, when you have supply chains that that routinely or typically rely on a really intricate ballet of sorts of um, moving parts, whether it's ships or workers or factories and services and, and the rest, 
Um, all of that is a finely tuned and finely choreographed machine that relies on generally the free flow of goods and services and capital, of course, but also just the ability to predict schedules, predict what economies, consumers, producers are going to do. Well, of course, the, the pandemic ruined all of that. Um, you know, you, we had in 2020 and even in 2021, economies starting and stopping on a dime. Um, we had factories closing and opening. And of course, we had uh, millions of workers in the United States and again around the world um, calling in sick or, you know, unfortunately getting sick or worse. All of that has a tremendous strain on the ability of multinational corporations, whether it's in the airline industry or in uh, retail sales, you know, uh, consumer goods. It doesn't really matter. I mean, it really all kind of affects investors, multinational companies, and planners in the same ways. It just makes it almost impossible to accurately predict what's going to happen next week, next month, and certainly next year. Now, um, so we saw this, uh, again, throughout the pandemic, and I've written a ton on different supply chain issues. Um, you know, we we all were worried if we were even going to have a, a Christmas last year. Um, and then, of course, President Biden took credit for saving Christmas and all of that. Now, all of that, you know, was, again, related to these classic supply chain issues. And in the airline industry, you know, it appears that we had a very similar story play out. Airlines thought that the pandemic was going to last longer and be deeper than it than it actually was. Um, so what did they do? Well, they started negotiating with their workers on whether it's early retirement packages or furloughs and, and other things. Um, and the same happened not only with what you think of, pilots and, and flight attendants and the rest, but um, also happened with mechanics. And the government did similar things um, with uh, air traffic controllers. And so that was the idea was, okay, we're going to have this big, deep uh, recession. Some even thought maybe a new Great Depression. So we need to prepare accordingly. Now, we all know now that that didn't happen. Of course, we had a, a deep steep downturn, but a pretty quick recovery, particularly in the United States, thanks to all sorts of things, uh, including uh, government policy, um, including uh, the miraculous uh, vaccines that came out, um, you know, only 10 months after uh, the pandemic really got, got cranking. And then, of course, related to just kind of simple uh, change in, in individuals' risk tolerance, their risk levels. So when that happened, uh, you had the airline industry really scrambling to catch up. And throughout uh, 2021 and now, of course, into 2022, we've seen those gears unable to crank up quickly and us to get back to uh, pre-pandemic levels. Um, you know, uh, and a big issue, as you guys surely know, in this regard is is related to pilots that were given early retirement or just got out of the game for their own reasons. It's just not easy to, to bring them back online. And that's caused one of the issues. But we're also seeing, again, shortages for mechanics and for flight attendants and for others as well. Now, you combine that supply side friction with a really unexpected increase in demand. Um, you know, even after it looked like the pandemic wasn't going to be as bad as we thought the pandemic was going to be, nobody really expected consumer demand to bounce back so quickly. And that's really been in travel, uh, the story of 2022. All of a sudden, uh, 
everybody wants to travel. And for anybody who's been in an airport, um, I was actually in O'Hare yesterday and it's, it's crazy out there. I mean, it is really, uh, you know, shoulder to shoulder, some of the busiest I've ever seen airports. And, you know, I've been traveling for on business for, for decades now. So that bounce back in demand has hit this sluggish to respond supply. And that causes a, a big problem in terms of flight cancellations and route cancellations and all of, of that sort of stuff. So I think that's to set the stage, that's your standard pandemic story. But I think, you know, as we'll get into in a bit, um, there's also a lot of other stuff going on in the industry that's making it harder for the supply side to respond to that spike in demand. Well, the industry has certainly learned that it was easier to shrink quickly than build back quickly. <laughs> so, Scott, being airline guys, we always tend to think the airlines have had the biggest impact from the pandemic or have been most affected. But more objectively, how would you rank the airline industry among others in terms of being impacted by the supply chain mess we've been in? I mean, I would say that it's one of the worst, but probably not the worst. Um, so I guess, you know, if I were giving it on a scale of, of one to 10, you're in the seven to eight range and 10 being the worst. Uh, you know, there's, there's, because we still have tons of air travel going on. We still have uh, a lot of flights. Now, we, we Americans can be kind of spoiled, you know, not just about air travel, but all sorts of things. And we expect, flights to always be on time and never to be canceled and all of that. And so I think, you know, really even modest upticks are, drive consumers a bit, a bit crazy. But if you look at the stats, as you guys know, I mean, there's still a lot of people traveling. My, my flight from O'Hare yesterday was, was, uh, it was delayed, but not canceled. So I only, you know, got home an hour and a half late. So certainly there's still a ton of business going on. It's just, again, there's a lot of frictions and, and a lot of um, problems and, and irritants for, for consumers. And, you know, when consumers get mad, then the media pay a lot of attention. And uh, it's a always good copy to show people sleeping in the airport. So I think, you know, that also kind of feeds the perception that this is the hardest hit industry. But when you compare it to some other industries, uh, you know, the one that I, I always think of in terms of pandemic related supply chain problems is, is baby formula. Um, when you compare it to baby formula, uh, things are pretty good. I mean, you know, in the in the depths of the U.S. infant formula crisis, which we saw uh, a few months ago, but still is persisting today. Um, you know, you were talking about forty to fifty percent of grocery store shelves were empty, and you were talking. I mean, it's a legitimate crisis that the president uh, had to resort to airlifting in baby formula from Europe. So, you know, in that regard, uh, the airline industry is doing better. But it certainly, like you guys know, uh, it's certainly struggling um, through uh, throughout the kind of post-pandemic recovery phase. Scott, I don't know if you've been following some of the issues out of Europe with their major airports where like at London Heathrow and Amsterdam Schiphol, they're actually capping passengers per day. They're telling passengers don't bring luggage. Yep. They're forcing their airline customers to cut back flights. Uh, you know, so in, in a broader sense, U.S. airports and U.S. airlines are doing relatively better than some of their counterparts overseas. But how would we in the U.S. have reacted to these kinds of, of caps and these kind of uh, external pressures on, on a free market? What would have been the, the ramifications, you think? 
Oh, well, you know, certainly I think it would have discouraged additional investment on the supply side, right? Whenever you have uh, the government capping, for example, prices or capping uh, the ability of airlines to, to generate revenues and generate profits, and as you inject uncertainty into uh, their business models, well, what's that going to do that's going to cause airlines to kind of seize up a bit and and reconsider their their expansion plans and whether it's you know bringing new pilots on or so forth and so um, you know it probably would have uh, as as these types of price and supply controls tend to do probably would have made things worse um, you know they they those types of actions whether it's airlines or uh, in uh, rent control or other types of price and supply restrictions, um, they, they, they're kind of like a sugar high, right? You're going to get a little boost in consumer satisfaction, but over the longer term, you're actually going to, you're going to discourage investment. You're going to discourage supply side expansion, and that's going to create even bigger problems. And, you know, I, we don't even really have to dream too much about this because of course the United States was not always a, a relatively free market, at least on the domestic side. Um, you know, we we had a very highly regulated industry throughout the 19, uh, you know, 60s and in the 70s. Um, and what you see, well, you saw higher fares and fewer routes, and you you saw, you know, generally similar uh, level of quality, just not the the availability for uh, normal American consumers. Um, and so, you know, again, you, 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 if you imagine an additional layer of regulation, you're probably going to, you wouldn't go back to the 1970s or anything, but you certainly would uh, be discouraging the type of expansions that, and, and investment that we really need right now. Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. From the ramp to the boardroom, Sidley provides the broadest range of legal services to clients on the most critical issues facing our industry today. Sidley combines unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com aviation for more information. Scott, we've heard this term, the great resignation, and some airline CEOs on earnings calls have used that term to explain why it's been hard for them to hire and staff up. Is the great resignation a real thing or is it a marketing term? You know, I, it is, the great resignation certainly is real. Um, what we saw in the depths of the pandemic for all sorts of reasons, was a really re a significant reduction in the number of available workers and in the labor force participation rate. So the um, the number of workers actually willing and able to work. Now, again, some of that is uh, government policy, whether you know you had expanded unemployment benefits or other types of uh, government money or you know uh, other types of government benefits that uh, simply discourage people from getting back into the labor force, give them an alternative to getting back into the labor force. Some of it is a very understandable fear of getting COVID, particularly in face-to-face -face jobs like, say, flight attendants, for example. And so, you know, you, because you had a reduction in labor supply and you have as we've discussed, you know, businesses are bouncing back. Consumer demand is bouncing back. You had a, a lot of demand for labor. Well, what does that do? Well, it gives workers a lot more bargaining power. 
And so throughout the pandemic, we saw workers take advantage of that increased bargaining power by jumping ship and moving to another field. Now, that is certainly, I think, going to explain some of the issues with airlines, because as you guys know, airline travel and uh, U.S. kind of consumption of airline services and air and air travel and tourism um, was was pretty depressed even after the rest of the U.S. economy was was relatively reopened, so throughout 2021. So again, if you're a worker in one of those industries, maybe you just look to um, move into a different industry that has you know less face-to-face contact, um, and uh, there are a ton of job openings. You know, we still, even after uh, the slight downturn in the economy, we still have record job openings um, here in the United States. So that, again, gives workers a lot of alternatives. They can go bargaining for higher wages and, and go find you know, the ability to do other things. Um, certainly with air travel as well, you know, there, there were um, for a long time <laughs> a lot more frictions in terms of mask requirements and the rest and then having to deal with angry customers doing that. So you know, certainly I think, I think that's going to play a part in this. But at the same time, you know, any economist will tell you there's really no such thing as a true labor shortage um, because the, you know, corporations can, especially large companies like airlines, can simply pay more to attract uh, more workers, but that that just you know ha- that's happened some, but it's just not happening to the extent necessary to to kind of close the gap. So this might be pushing it beyond your expertise, but as you study the broad economic trends, where do you see business travel, which is so important to you know, historically to airline profitability? Uh, where do you see business travel going in the context of again people are working more remotely, companies are changing their patterns of business travel, both intra-company and with customers and the like. Do you see any any signs of, of how this will proceed given where we are on a macroeconomic level? You know, you're right that it is a, a little out of my, my area in terms of specifically looking at business travel, but I think there are a few data points we can point to that, that might indicate that business travel is going to remain somewhat depressed uh, for a while. Um, The first is, as you noted, the simple expansion of remote work. Uh, Looking at some of the latest data, we saw remote work, uh, Americans working remotely most or all of the time was about 6% of the workforce. According to the data from, from this spring, it jumped to 30% of the workforce working some or most of the time remotely. Now, if you think about that in terms of the ability to then do your job from a computer screen, and that will reduce um, the need to travel. Um, if if people are getting used to Zooming, uh, if they're getting used to doing all of their work from their house or whatever, um, my my guess is there's going to be less a need or at least a belief from from the worker side, and probably a bit from the employer side as well, that that workers need to get that get out back on the road. Anecdotally, I can tell you, uh, I was actually just talking to a friend of mine who who does an executive search for a living, and prior to the pandemic, he was traveling all the time. Uh, I I just spoke to him recently. He said he's only traveled twice this entire year. Um, so, and that uh, again, he said everything has has moved to Zoom now. I so I think. Um, you know, some of that remote work, the, the more we're comfortable with remote work, the more that millions and millions of Americans are now doing it most or all of the time, uh, you're probably going to see that have a, an effect on, on business travel as well. 
Scott, you have talked about the supply chain issues in the U.S. and sort of ranked the airlines compared to some others. Looking back over the last you know, year or two, can you point to any specific U.S. policies that have made this better? Or can you say, had we done this, it would be even better now? Basically, how do you think U.S. policy has affected where we are today? Great question. Um, you know, the fact is that shortages and frictions were inevitable. Um, they were inevitable in every industry and they've popped up in basically every industry. But when you dig a little deeper, what you see is the most persist the industry showing the most persistent problems. So the shortages don't last a, a month or so. They last several months, a year or more. And um, when you look at those industries, um, when you scratch beneath the surface, you tend to find uh, U.S. laws and regulations that are constitute pretty significant restrictions on the supply side. You know, I mentioned infant formula earlier. What well, turns out we have high tariffs on imported infant formula, strict FDA regulations for both imported and domestically produced infant formula. And then on top of that, a big welfare program that concentrates the industry even more here in the United States. Well, Airlines actually have a lot of those types of regulations too, and I think they are certainly playing a role in not causing these problems, because like you said, there are problems in Europe and elsewhere, um, but simply making these problem, the current problems worse uh, than they needed to be, and importantly, really preventing the market from adjusting quickly to um, satisfy changes in demand. So on, on the airline side, you know, there, there appear to be a couple big ones. One, and the one that I really, uh, I'm not uh, an expert in, but certainly I've read enough about it to know is on the labor side. You know, it really, um, we have pretty strict rules for uh, pilot training and schooling. It costs a lot of money to be a commercial pilot here in the United States. Uh, federal regulation requires a, a very significant number of, um, of hours, flight hours um, to be uh, registered. We have strict rules on on retirement age and this rest, and that appears to be a pretty significant supply side restriction. Those regulatory uh, rules, a supply side restriction to getting uh, more pilots into uh, commercial airlines in the United States and and solving some of the the problems with respect to a lack of of current pilots. You can't just snap your fingers and then suddenly have someone flying a <laughs> a commercial uh, plane, as you guys you know certainly know, and as makes makes total sense. So, so those restrictions um, certainly appear to be playing a role. And that's gotten a lot of press. But the one that doesn't, hasn't gotten nearly as much, um, and but I've written about, is a U.S. cabotage law. So as you guys probably know, and as your, uh, some of your folks in your audience surely know, the United States imposes really strict rules on who can operate commercial airlines in the United States. In particular, uh, U.S. law essentially bars foreign airlines from operating in the United States, um, but also even in, uh, bars uh, foreign individuals from owning U.S. headquartered companies here in the United States. So famously, you know, Richard Branson's Virgin Air, um, uh, that the, their plans to operate a, a domestic uh, carrier were, were thwarted because uh, Brant's, Richard Branson, you know, wasn't going to give up control of, of, of the airline and, and U.S. law kind of required that. So 
th those cabbage restrictions, uh, studies show, have uh, not only increased airfare in the United States, but have restricted uh, the supply of available airline, commercial airline services, uh, meaning fewer routes, meaning uh, fewer choices for, for Americans. Now, if you look at other countries that have embraced a bit of liberalization, because a lot of countries have these restrictions, but if you look at, say, Europe, for example, um, when, when Europe uh, embraced a partial liberalization of, of its airline services, um, what you saw was, uh, again, not just lower fares, but more supply, more carriers, more routes, um, and, and thus a, more, a thicker and more robust market. Now, what that could have helped with during uh, the pandemic and now is that carriers would have been more easily able to, for example, uh, satisfy new demand, maybe more um, on the uh, individual consumer side, less on the business side. Uh, there'd be potentially more opportunities, new market entrants to handle some of these routes um, that uh, are less in demand or that some of the legacy carriers are looking to abandon. Um, and so that type of competition, it would do what competition does. It would simply allow um, for there to be uh, new and different alternatives while, of course, um, you know, lowering prices along the way. Well, Scott, you have a great way of making very complicated topics sound understandable. As we close out here, if people like what they've heard, go ahead and give a plug and tell our listeners how else they can read or hear your material. Sure, happy to do that. Um, well, the easiest thing to do is go to the Cato Institute's website, cato.org, and you can find basically everything I write at my bio page. Just Type in Scott Lincecum at the top, and and I'll pop up uh, right there. Um, also, if you if you love what you've heard, uh, you can subscribe. Uh, I have a Substack again with the Dispatch Media Company called Capitalism, capital with an O, capitalism, um, and uh, you could you can subscribe there as well to get my uh, my thoughts directly to your inbox each week. Scott, thanks for joining us. I have to say that I am broadcasting right now from under my desk because I think your discussion on cabotage is going to set off a little little firestorm with, uh, with our listeners, but you're a great advocate for it, and there's arguments on both sides of this issue, but um, we'll see how our listeners respond. I enjoyed this conversation immensely, and I want to thank you. Oh, my pleasure. And for those who are, are hurling the vegetables right now, um, I do recommend you look at the economics research on cabotage liberalization to just see how it can, you know, improve the U.S. Uh, economic situation, U.S. airline situation as well. Uh, maybe that won't stop the vegetable hurling, but at least, uh, you know, you can give it a fair shake. Thank you very much, Scott. And thanks for coming on the show. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Welcome back, and thanks again to Scott for that discussion. Time to open up the listener mailbag to see what's on your mind. We welcome your questions by email at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. 
And before we get to your questions, a quick reminder that this week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is delivering industry-leading sustainability, mature dispatch reliability, and world-class operating costs. Now with the GTF Advantage engine for the Airbus A320neo family, the best is getting even better. Learn more at pwgtf.com slash advantage. Chris, we got a couple of comments prompted by our conversation in the last show with Bjorn Larson from North Atlantic Airways. Angus from Hudson Valley, New York, wrote saying, Ben and Chris, I was excited to see that your most recent episode included an interview with Bjorn Larson of Norse. However, I was disappointed that you ignored what should have been the single most important point. In Norse's initial DOT filings, they promised to fly to underserved airports like Stewart in New York's Hudson Valley. They proceeded with a hefty targeted marketing push in the area, and there was a lot of media buzz and excitement amongst locals who missed the European connectivity once provided by Norwegian to Edinburgh and Dublin. Norse seems to have gotten off lightly with the last-minute bait-and-switch and now serve markets like JFK and L.A. that don't really need any new players. Why did you dodge this crucial point and let the CEO off the hook for their clearly deceptive DOT filing? Angus, thanks for your question. I'm not sure all of our listeners are as passionate about this matter as you might be, but it's a fair point. So I followed up with the North Atlantic team on this matter, and they provided a comment back to me for everyone's benefit. We are eager to commence operations at Stewart and intend to add it to our network as soon as it can handle the cargo we will bring to and from the United States. Cargo will be a significant part of our inbound revenues, consequently enabling us to offer affordable fares to our customers. We have ongoing discussions with the Stewart team about future operations, and we are grateful for their support. You know, that rings true to me, Chris. Airports that have had spotty service or currently have no international service and maybe only had it for a short time, and Stewart sort of fits both those, it is very possible that an airline that wants to serve the airport has to wait for the airport to make sure certain facilities or certain operations are in place to make the flight successful. So I would hold North Atlantic accountable for serving Stewart at some point, I don't think it will cannibalize their JFK service either. Well, we've been talking uh, for a few weeks about the importance of cargo, and so this just underscores that. And then, Ben, we also had another comment about that interview from Scott in New Hampshire. Guys, not one mention about Norwegian Air. We, U.S. airline pilots, have to fight to keep them out of our industry as they're trying to bring in this flag of convenience model that plagues the shipping industry, as you know this, Chris. I won't lie, I was a little disappointed that this wasn't addressed. You asked lots of questions, but missed the big ones. So, Scott, thanks for the comment. And given your point of view, I'm guessing you didn't look favorably on the discussion about cabotage we just had with Scott. But Ben, I'm confused what we were supposed to ask Bjorn about another airline. North Atlantic has nothing to do with the old Norwegian Air, nor its affiliated carriers or company. North Atlantic's aircraft and the company are registered in Norway. 
They have pilot bases in the UK and Oslo, so I will stand corrected if I don't understand how the flag of convenience issue is at play here, but can you help me? Well, I think that Bjorn did mention Norwegian very early on when he said because of Norwegian's failure, we were able to get the 787s at really good prices. So I've heard him mention Norwegian before, maybe not in our interview, although I thought he did early on. And they are not shy about saying we got these great airplanes and this great asset at a price we didn't think we'd ever get them in the future because Norwegian failed and the lessors were sort of stuck with these airplanes. And so Norse Atlantic was the beneficiary of them. Beyond that, I agree with you, Chris. They have really nothing to do with Norwegian. They don't have the same labor model, and I'm not sure they're thinking about the same business model either. I would hope they're not. And the reason I say that is Bjorn admittedly isn't an airline guy. So why would you copy the model of a business that only broke even when every other airline was making a lot of money in 2018 and 2019? Right. And and my recollection was he was also very conciliatory towards labor. And I think AFA either is on the property already or in the process of organizing the flight attendants. So, um, Scott, it was a, it was a, I understand your concern and I appreciate you raising the question. I guess we've kind of swung and missed with regard to answering it though. So, and Ben, we've got another keeping us honest comment. And this one's from Brian in the DFW area about our discussion regarding the American Airline flight cutbacks in November. He said we got it wrong and gasped that Brett Snyder at the Cranky Flyer got it right. And he said along the link to Brett's story. So, oh, morally dubious, Ben, what do you say? Well, I guess I am morally dubious on this one, Chris, (laughs) because I guess we did get this wrong. But I'll hold true to the answers we gave on this, that American has been more aggressive about loading future capacity and then pulling back some. Maybe they didn't pull back as much as original, but I'd be surprised if the fall capacity that they loaded back in spring, if they're going to fly 100% of that. Maybe it's not the 31,000 flights that we reported on that was a report that obviously was a false report. And I think the issues we talked about, about the way American has dealt with their capacity compared to others, and the fact that fall is a time where, but for the holidays of Thanksgiving and then to December, there just isn't as much traffic. And then I guess the gist of Brett's analysis was that many airlines often load up too much into the schedule for late November, which is typically a slow travel period. They're just using their models and they pull back as the date gets closer. Am I characterizing that appropriately? Yeah, I think that's fair, the way he brought that up. And think of it this way. You don't necessarily know And airlines certainly know less today about the future than maybe they did pre-pandemic because 
passengers are changing, even the big demand of the summer. Some people are thinking that was bigger than it would normally have been because for two years, people didn't fly that much. So you can't even look at next summer and say it's going to be as good as this summer in terms of volume of people. So there's nothing wrong with the idea of loading a lot of capacity for flights way out six months or more and then start to look at what's booking and then sort of say, okay, we're going to keep this and trim this back. That doesn't disenfranchise a lot of people. That doesn't require a lot of reaccommodation if you do it soon enough, but it gives you some data, which is especially helpful in an environment where where it's just been so hard to predict the future. Ben, we've got a finer wine, and this is from Jay in Detroit. Hey guys, love the podcast and listen to each episode. My family and I had a recent experience that I wanted to run by you. After a two and a half year wait for the world to reopen, we took a great family trip to St. Martin. American Airlines canceled our flight at 3 a.m., or they notify us at 3 a.m., from Detroit to Charlotte, forcing us to miss our flight from Charlotte to St. Martin. We found out as we got up to get to the airport. We worked with the teams and were only able to be rebooked the next day from Detroit to Miami and then on to St. Martin. However, the cancellation was operational, not weather, and we missed our first night of paid-for hotel. This was over $900 for the night. We also used miles to buy seats to sit together as a family. We finally got to St. Martin, had a blast, and came home with no issues. We feel American owes us for the one night missed and should reimburse our miles we didn't use on the flight they canceled. We submitted a request through the webpage and they denied it just on the miles part. They haven't responded after a month to our request for a refund for the hotel. And so we'll now send a letter via snail mail. I feel for the airline crews, the staff, and I always go the extra mile to be nice to them and all the workers who are overstressed right now, but we can't be out nearly $1,000 due to a cancellation on their part. So is this a fine or a wine? I hate to say this, Chris, but I actually think it's a wine. The reason I say that is we've talked about the contract of carriage multiple times on this show. The contract of carriage is a true legal contract that Jay in Detroit signed and everybody who flies signs that outlines very clearly when the airlines will refund your money and when they will not. An American denying his refund request is clearly looking at that contract of carriage and saying this meets conditions that Jay agreed to that says he won't get a refund. Now, that said, it's possible that American's contract of carriage should be changed. It's possible that, Jay, you're right, that it would be a better thing if airlines did refund you in a case like this. But that's not what American does right now. That's what they told you they don't do. And that's what you agreed you'd accept when you got the ticket. So in that sense, it's a whine. However, I do think you've pointed out a great issue here that the increased number of refunds or refundable kind of events that have happened since the pandemic started 
airlines canceled a lot of flights, then couldn't rebuild back quickly. And we know all the challenges operationally we've had over the summer. I think that sort of forces all airlines to think, how do we want to play this part of the game? And I agree with you, Jay, that it should be better than what you saw. Although I'm going to call this a whine because I think American is doing exactly what you agreed to accept that they would do. So I'm going to agree with the wine conclusion, but I'm going to make a couple of exceptions and comments. One, you said that the contract of carriage clearly lays out what they will or will not do. No contract of carriage I've seen clearly lays out anything. It's clear as mud. You know, most people give up trying to read it. And I think um, airlines often hide behind the contract of carriage, knowing it's a complicated document that they're always going to win any argument on. I do think he's owed back the miles he paid for the seats he didn't get. So, and I'm surprised they denied him that because they didn't deliver the service. He used miles to purchase seats and he didn't get them. I think the miles should be refunded. And then finally, this is the kind of stuff that is getting DOT all worked up in their rulemaking. And again, airlines not finding better ways to solve some of these things just begs for Thanks for regulation. And then finally, Jay, I just got to say travel insurance, travel insurance, travel insurance. Uh, When you're spending that much money, it's probably worth a little more to see if your hotel uh, expenses that you might lose out on are going to be covered and to purchase travel insurance. So I'll, I'll leave it there. Good tips, Chris. I will also point out that Jay sort of supports the point we made in the last answer when he says, after two and a half years of waiting for the world to reopen, we took our trip. So thank you, Jay, for taking the trip. Sorry that it worked out the way it did, but glad you finally got there and glad you had a great time ultimately. Well, Ben, time to power down, but not before we give our shout outs. And mine is to Ebers the winner of TSA's 2022 Cutest Dog Award. He was chosen by travelers from 92 working canines who support TSA's airport security services. Seems to me that choosing the cutest dog is an impossible task, but TSA found a way, and I think Ebers deserves some extra kibble. That was a fun uh, contest, and Ebers is a cutie. My uh, shout-out, Chris, goes to Captain Aisha Almansori, who's the first female captain at Etihad Airlines. And we all think of the UAE and the Middle East as this place that's very behind the times in terms of women's rights. And I'm sure in many ways they may still be. But I think it's great that Etihad not only finally made this happen, but really supported it and said it was part of a broad initiative to find ways to bring more women into the cockpits. We need that everywhere in the world, Chris. Yes, we do. And I think this was Women's Equality Week uh, that uh, that announcement was uh, kind of uh, coincidental with that as well. With that, uh, let's say goodbye and thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Have a great week, everyone. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.